Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, my name is Charlie Kamada. I was an astronaut on Space Shuttle Discovery, the return to flight mission, STS-114, right after the Columbia accident. I will be your host today for the Leading Edge Discovery podcast series, uh, where we will be meeting with experts from the United States and some from around the world, talking about the importance of science, technology, engineering, math, especially research. We're going to focus on research. This first season of episodes is going to be devoted to the aerospace industry, NASA, in particular, how we use um, complex engineering solutions to solve critical problems. Problem we're going to be addressing uh, initially is going to be the Columbia accident, what caused it, um, and, and how do we develop technology to make sure astronauts could fly safe in space. This is uh, particularly um, passionate, uh, something I'm passionate about. I flew on the first uh, space shuttle mission after the Columbia accident, and I relied on friends like our current guest, Steve Scotty, who's a dear friend and colleague, to help us fly safe. Uh, Steve works at uh, worked at NASA Langley Research Center. He was a physicist, a research engineer, specializing in thermal structures, right? Thermal protection systems, also uh, structural optimization. And Steve has some amazing accomplishments that he's going to talk to us about. His expertise is as broad as it is deep. And I'm very proud to count him as a friend of Charlie, a dear friend of Charlie, an FOC. And so, uh, Steve, I'd like to um, hand the ball over to you. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what got you excited about working in science, engineering, and in particular space. Okay. Uh, thanks, Charlie. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I, I guess I could start at, at, in the early years. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, probably not too far from where Charlie grew up. In fact, we probably had a lot of the same similar experiences uh same tv station same sports teams and so on are all all in the same local area uh my family were butchers and uh, my father was a produce man he basically delivered produce to to restaurants and and uh uh grocery stores uh supermarkets things like that had his own business uh which means he worked 24 7 so he he never had a day off uh, so that was not a career I wanted to go into, <laughs> talking about careers. Uh, also, I was always 
early on interested in technical things. My father, as much as I loved him, you know, he couldn't handle the screwdriver. So whenever something broke, we had, I had two uncles that always came over and, and fixed things around the house that were, uh, you know, needed to be fixed, whether it's plumbing or, or lights or, you know, something electrical, uh, something that these, you know, just had some mechanical things fell apart, a shelf fell down. So uh, I always hung around those uncles when they came over. I was amazed what they could do. And I think that kind of got me started thinking about technical technical areas. Uh, also, my early years was the start of the, the space program, really. Uh, I still can remember the first launching of the uh, uh, Alan Shepard in the first uh, Mercury capsule, uh, first you know human in a Mercury capsule. And I remember seeing that uh, when I was, I don't know, five years old, something like that. I was pretty young. Uh, and, and then of course space was all the, all the rage back then. So that kind of, those two things kind of went together. And, and I always had, uh, uh, a desire to uh, work for NASA after that. I think, you know, I wanted to be a technical person working for NASA. I really didn't want to become an astronaut as much as Charlie did. I don't think, but I think I did, I wouldn't mind doing that either, but it's hard to do it all. Charlie was able to do it all. I, I could not do it all, but uh, hey, Steve, I want, I want to stop you. It's very interesting because I didn't realize we were this similar. I knew we were very similar Italian American, uh, grandparents, roots, immigrants. Um, I didn't realize your father was a butcher, but knowing that he worked 24 seven, like my father, who was also a butcher, I don't know if you, your mother's influence, but my mother was always telling me, you see this, you don't want to work <laughs> as hard as your father, right? You don't want to do that kind of work. Yeah, my mother, she didn't, she never, uh, that was not something she would say to us, but she did complain when, you know, all of a sudden that during a meal, my father had to go, you know, deal with a customer that, that called because they, our phone was always ringing. Uh, in fact, my father had the fastest finger dialing a, a push button phone of anyone I ever saw. He could get through a number in, in probably a second and a half. He could pu punch it so quickly and, and not make many mistakes. So, so anyway, uh, but yeah, in some ways, very similar that way. I didn't realize, yeah, your father was 24 seven. My, my father was also not a handyman, couldn't fix anything. And I had uncles, one of them, that, a couple of them used to work for Grumman. And so this was where, you know, my interest was, which is similar to you, fixing things, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I still have a love for, you know, something breaks before I find anyone else to do it. I want to see if I can do it myself. Uh, that's my desire because I have that, you know, that kind of stuff never leaves you, I don't think. I think you have that from once that bug bites you, you've always got that bug. You always want to fix the problem. And that's kind of what engineers do, too. Uh, they want they want to fix the problem. They want a solution. So, but, but you chose you didn't ch choose engineering to start with, I believe, right, Steve? You you chose physics, right? Right. Yeah, that's a a, a different story. Actually, I was I was going to be a physicist going into college. Uh, I I really loved physics. I was always amazed by relativity and things like that. Uh, but I was also interested in getting married, and I think my junior year, no, it must have been my sophomore year in college, I found out there was basically people that majored in physics were having trouble getting jobs. So a lot of trouble getting jobs where engineers were in huge demand. So they were close enough. I decided, well, let me change majors because I was interested in getting married at the time too. I had a girlfriend and, you know, we didn't get married for a few years later, but uh, uh, I wanted to make sure I had a job too. So that was that was part of it. So it's basically mixing the practical with the uh, with the technical. Uh, was was part of the reason for switching from physics into engineering. So anyway, that's 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 that story. 
so so you I know you started out in industry. I think you were working for McDonnell Douglas, right? When you first that, started? That's correct. Yeah, they, they were well, they were all over the place back then where they were bought by Boeing, but this was in Southern California. So I uh, I was I was kind of a research scientist there. I've got I've got a dog here trying to crawl on me. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I worked for, for three years for Donald Douglas before I came east to work uh, as a contractor for NASA and then eventually a NASA employee. But yeah, I did. I had a lot of uh, fun experiences working in Southern California uh, for McDonnell Douglas. So yeah, and, but again, as an engineer, uh, it it kind of mixed a little bit of both because I actually worked in essentially the uh, the uh, the word for it. essentially I did worked in space science. So basically things like you know how do satellites get charged, you know, and and sometimes charging of satellites moving through the ionosphere would actually blow out components. And so there was some some problems that I, I helped on. I was just a junior person then. So I just kind of, you know, I, I did the math and, and and did some of the programming and things like that, but uh, I wasn't as as independent as as much later when working for NASA and, and, and as a research engineer, which I think that's a real part of being a research engineer is you have to have a bit of independence to be able to follow problems wherever they lead. And 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 so this was in your DNA. This is something you wanted to do. You love solving problems. Research, you got the research bug when you were at McDonnell Douglas. You come to work as a contractor for NASA. Walk us through who were some of your early mentors and how did they fuel that that growth in, in uh, research, that mentorship? That's a, that's a really good good question. Thank you. Uh I think when I first started working as a contractor at NASA, I actually had the 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 really I was lucky. I had a, a NASA person who was kind of my mentor. Uh, I think he was my mentor. His name was Bob Jackson, and he was a tremendous, uh, tremendously creative person. He he would come up with a new idea every every day, and lots of times he 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 came up with so many ideas. A lot of the people that worked for him basically tried to prove out whether his ideas were good or not. Uh, and so I was, I was one of the people that did that for him. And, and he, again, he gave you a lot of freedom, even though as a contractor, he said, you know, I think he had a saying, as long as you're not studying the sex life of the Titsi fly, go ahead and, 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 and give, give it a try. That was an expression he used. Uh, and, and he was right because I learned a ton of stuff from that. Uh, I learned, uh, he also tied me in with a lot of, uh, people that were in his network. So I learned a lot of technical areas that were kind of ancillary to my expertise and structures. Uh, and so uh, having a mentor like that that encourage you to branch out is really, I think, uh, uh, was critical in my career anyway, because uh, rather than saying, you know, why are you wasting your time looking at this or that, he actually encouraged me to broaden, broaden my uh, expertise, uh, follow, follow a trail wherever it led. Uh, and, and really, uh, I think he had a probably had, he had probably the most impact on my career of, of, of my mentors. I had other mentors who were really good too, uh, that were excellent as well. Jim Starnes, who at your version of too, Charlie was another yeah. Yeah. great mentor of mine. Uh, and, and to be honest, working for NASA, there was not a person that you go to in another area of, of, of another discipline that maybe wasn't your discipline that wouldn't help you if you went and asked them. And that was one of the key things of working at NASA and the, the NASA Research Center is people had the time for you and they actually helped you learn areas that you know, wasn't their responsibility, it wasn't their job description, but they were just willing to help someone who was eager to learn. And that was something I thought was, again, a unique thing at NASA. And, and it's, I, I think it's still 
true today, uh, although it was really true to a very large degree back when I started my career. Yeah, walk us through a little bit of what the environment was like. You as a researcher now working at, at NASA and, and at a research center, NASA Langley Research Center. Tell us about what the environment was like in order for you to, to nurture you in this uh, in this growth, if you will. Well, uh, so the environment then was, was I, I can tell you from a little bit of experience, much different than it is today. Uh, everything... Today is more program-driven, milestones, reaching milestones, and so on. There was for more at that time more like finding a solution or finding a new path to follow, uh, whether it's a, a, a new a new approach for a structure for a vehicle. Uh, but you had a lot a lot of freedom to again follow these paths to where they where they would lead. Uh, you had the time to do the background research. So lots of times, engineers I, I've seen this even with youngsters today, they reinvent the wheel. Uh, because they don't know what's already been done. So we were encouraged really to, to not just research in our technical area, but also research and literature reviews, you know, going to the library, looking at old uh, reports uh, that from both NASA and outside of NASA, uh, journals, technical articles. We actually were encouraged to spend our time learning the broad breadth of discipline, looking what's been done before. And that's encouraged for and that's encouraged a lot when you're, let's say you're working for a PhD, uh, you have to do your literature review. You have to have, that's a big part of your actual dis dissertation is a literature review showing you've looked around the field and, and aren't ignoring things that have been done. Uh, yeah. And, and that what you're thinking about doing, the novelty that you're adding to that is going to increase that body of knowledge, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, again, if you spend a lot of time doing something that's already been done, you've wasted a lot of time where you could just, you know, read an article that said, oh, this is how you do this problem or how you, how this, uh, this uh, idea works. And so having the time to find out what's been done already was really encouraged a lot then. And, and that's something, I think just because things are more driven by uh, programmatics and milestones today, does not happen as much as it should. And so I think that's, that's something a mentor really my mentors encourage that very much so. Uh, and I think and, that's something when I mentor young engineers, I do the same thing. Find out and what's that going And that really gives a good, um, a good reason for having a rich research culture and, and environment. You know, I call it, it was psychologically safe. We could make mistakes. As yeah. long as we were learning from those mistakes, we weren't making the same mistakes. That's, that's, that's really the definition of research. As we're trying to construct knowledge of something we're trying to understand that we don't really have um, all the answers to. And, and you got to work on, you know, I talk about your breath. And Steve, you were one of the people that when you were in my branch, and, and when I first got to know you, we were just working in maybe different branches. You had this tremendous breadth of, of understanding. You, and you could pick up a new field and dive into it and learn it very quickly. And um, and so we've had other people on the show that were down and in, in a particular field, like a Peter Nafo, down and in, in aerothermal dynamics, like a... Um, a Mike Nemeth down and in in nonlinear thin wall structural behavior. But you had more of this breadth. And so tell us a little bit about the branch that you worked in and then eventually started leading. And what were some of the, the um, technologies that you worked on? Okay, well, uh, 
a lot of my area of expertise is, is in structures, but in high temperature structures. So uh, to understand high temperature structures and, and how they, uh, they work, you have to understand how they get the high temperatures. So one of the things that uh, I, I was encouraged to learn about that was kind of outside the, the, the uh, core structures area was, was atmospheric you know, aerothermal heating. Essentially, when you fly at a high speed and either an aircraft or a, or a vehicle enters the atmosphere from space, it gets really hot. And so how do you figure out how hot it gets? So you have to, um, so one of the things I learned from some of the experts at NASA Langley was the basics of aerothermal heating and, and not just the basis of it, but also how to solve problems in it. So I learned some of the tools you use, understand the basis of those tools, but also be able to use those tools myself to solve problems. Uh, and that was one of the things that, that uh, I was encouraged to do because it kind of helped the team be able, the team, the branch I was in, especially in my early in my career, you know, they needed to be able to get those problems solved. And so having someone inside the organization who knew enough to be able to, to develop the, uh, the, the data needed for solving the structures problems was needed. So, so the heating is the first step. Next step, that heating actually makes things hot, you know, and then how did that temperature on the outside get to the inside? So you had heat transfer uh, and how different as a heat transfer. So, Actually, heat transfer is something I knew fairly well before I came to NASA because that was an area, one of the areas I really studied. But again, a lot of structures people don't delve into heat transfer that much either. So, uh, but I was, again, I was encouraged to do that. And so I helped develop some tools that, that we used in-house to do that, as well as using commercial tools and, and other research tools. So, so really it's, it's very much a problem. Everything in research, in my experience, has been problem driven. You've got, you're trying to, you're trying to solve a problem, a very general problem, not a very specific problem. Uh, whereas a Mike Nemeth or Peter Naufel was trying to very solve a very specific problem. We're trying to solve a very general problem in terms of what's a new structural way that a, a vehicle can be built that can handle high temperatures and re-enter the atmosphere or, or fly at high temperatures. So uh, this, these general problems required inputs from a lot of different disciplines. And, and, and I didn't work all the disciplines, but I worked enough that we could make progress. And then I also learned who to go to that was not in, in our organization. Uh, so the uh, uh, so you could essentially, they, they would they would be helpful. Sometimes they'd that's, actually solve the problem for you. Sometimes they'd tell you how to solve the problem. That's that's a key point, Steve. And, and you're instrumental. You you were a key figure in being able to do this. this is, these are skills that we learned. I think working in that thermal structures branch, because these were typically not just uh, a, a component of a structure. This was a system. We were looking at thermal protection systems, thermal management systems as a system at, at that research level. And so we had people in the branch. You had people in, in your branch. Steve took over my branch after I left to be an astronaut. And um, and and they had this understanding of this multidisciplinary understanding of the physics of this problem. But we also knew if we were getting into trouble or needed to understand something we didn't quite understand in enough depth that we had just the right person at Langley we could go to. And so, Steve, you solved some tremendous problems. And when I was, I guess we could uh, segue into the Columbia accident when I was in, in in Russia and the Columbia accident happened. You were one of the first people I called up because we had to start assembling these teams 
this network of teams to try to figure these problems out. And Steve, walk us through a couple of, and you have many, right? But walk us through a couple of the teams that you helped work on and what were some of the challenges that you had to solve? How did you go about building these teams? And why did those people on the team working together on these, what I call epic challenges, why was that Why was that so critical? Why were you so successful, right, when other people were struggling? Um, well, and again, my experience is going to be kind of unique because uh, there are many people who worked on the uh, investigation for Columbia, as well as, you know, what, what it takes to return the fly uh, and for your, in the, in the mission you went on. Uh, but the... Uh, so let so me I give let me give a typical example. Let me give a typical example. One of the first things people said was we didn't know if the foam hit the if the hit the tiles or the wing leading edge. So I said, Steve, if it if the foam hits the tiles, I call them up from Johnson Space and I said, Steve, if the foam hits the tiles, um, what's the likelihood that other tiles could pop off? right behind the tile, that empty cavity, we call tile zippering, right? I think that was something you immediately jumped in on. Yeah, and so I, I, I vaguely remember that, Charlie. And and uh, it turns out that there, back when the shuttle was being developed, uh, there were a lot of wind tunnel tests done on, on, on the shuttle tiles at Langley and elsewhere too. And so luckily there were still some people around that had worked on that because the shuttle had been in service for, for decades by then, uh, but there were still enough people around and that either had worked on that problem or knew about pe new people who worked on that problem and, and they pointed me toward reports, essentially again, look again, doing the research, finding out what's been done in that area. And you know, it turned out that uh, there had been some work done in, in, uh, in our wind tunnels, uh, looking at tile out effects, and, uh, and and at the time, I'm trying to remember this because uh, it's been a while since I since I looked at that. But I think the uh, the feeling was that the tests were over tests; they were too severe. So any any uh, progressive damage that was causing those tests would not be realistically found uh, in in flight because the wind tunnels you can only simulate certain conditions, not all conditions in flight. So so they. they choose pieces of the trajectory and uh, try to simulate that in a wind tunnel. And so, you know, they can get the very early part, they can get the very late part. A lot of stuff in the middle, they really can't do all the conditions that are similar to flight. So what they did simulate uh, that showed any kind of potential damage to tiles that would progress uh, was was believed to be an overtest. So, so, they, so they didn't feel it was a a showstopper when the shuttle was being developed. Uh, right. And and I remember actually calling those people up the minute the accident happened, people like Roan Hunt, Herman Bohan from Russia. I probably woke them up and I was asking them to collect all that data. But you're absolutely right. So they ran these tests in the eight foot high temperature tunnel. The tests were more severe. But like good researchers, we would like to run those tests and be able to develop the analytical techniques to predict what happens in those conditions and then hopefully apply them to the real conditions. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, back when shuttles developed the capability to do that, to be able to do a wind tunnel test and have an analytical tool like a computer program to actually simulate that 
was non-existent and we didn't have the computer power to do that. We actually started getting that power at the, uh, uh, at the, at, at, at the level necessary uh, about the time of the Columbia accident, maybe a little before then. And Peter Naufo, who you, you've spoken with, I know also, he was instrumental in developing some of the best tools for that. But back when shuttle was developed, uh, there's no way to go from, from wind tunnel to flight. Uh, yeah. And, and now, now it's a lot more, I, I think there's a lot more tools available that actually do that and do it well. Uh, so there's a lot of engineering judgment early, in the early days of shuttle that, you know, decisions were made based on essentially the best opinion of the best experts we had because we couldn't simulate everything. And so that's something, that's something where we can do better now but then there's a tendency to overanalyze things. So you've got to avoid that too. You've got to make a decision sometime. You, you know, there are a couple other examples of phenomenal teams that I dragged you in. I, I didn't really have to drag you. Once I put a good problem out there, the people that worked in the thermal structures branch for me and Steve, all you had to do was give them that little hook and they just jumped in. And, and I can remember we were working the repair effort and me and, and Don Pettit, another good astro, fellow astronaut, we were working in his garage. And I said, we're, we're done working in the garage. We have some really good ideas. Now's the time to go reach out to my good friends at Langley. Let's have a um, let's have a workshop, a three day workshop. Let's bring all these other people in there and let's start coming up with innovative ideas. I'm going to hand it off to you, Stephen. You take it away because you event you eventually led that um, repair effort for the um, wing leading edges. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I was there was actually several repair efforts, and and I was some run by a program a program at Johnson Space Center. Uh, and I was involved in that, but also they, thanks to Charlie, they gave us a little rope to be able to kind of do some independent, more advanced uh, R&D, they called it, essentially, you know, beyond just turn to crank engineering to look at really innovative solutions. And, and so this was a team that Charlie helped, helped me form because he was instrumental in, in actually getting us an ability to do this uh, from, from the, the people at Johnson, because you still have to pay people to do stuff. <laughs> so if they don't agree that it's a good thing to do, uh, uh, it's hard to get hard to get a team together. Hey, unless, unless hey, so tell us, you know, and I'm going to brag a little bit about you, Steve, because your team was very success successful. Uh, the teams that we had up and running were struggling. And I was watching them struggle. And that's when I, I realized that, hey, we could do this. I mean, this was something that we did for 22 years when I was at Langley. Steve, I know the rest of the folks in our branch, this was right up our alley. I said, we could do we could do this problem. So my boss, Kent Rominger, the head of the, of the astronaut office said, Charlie, okay, we'll go over to the program office and we'll tell them this is what you want to do. And so he gave me the green light. I handed off to you. Talk about how you how you put this team together, how you got them to work together, because I think this is important. I think this building this network, this research network of teams with the right people, you can get solutions very quickly. And you did. So go ahead, Steve. Okay, so um, you mentioned this workshop. So we had a workshop where we it was like you mentioned earlier, you want to have people with multiple disciplines, multiple backgrounds there to contribute. Um, and you also want it to be safe. So you mentioned, you know, essentially you, you want to be able to make suggestions and not feel like someone could jump down your throat uh, because that's a stupid suggestion. We're not going to do that. Uh, so 
the team we put together, uh, one of the things I had discovered many years ago is don't say no immediately. Uh, let, let things develop uh, as, as far as you can before you pull the plug on them, because sometimes it only takes getting over a little bit of hill and all of a sudden you've, you're, you've got a beautiful glide slope to get down to. So, so trying to keep multiple efforts because we don't know the, we didn't know the answer. We didn't know the best answers. So we had multiple concepts and different, you know, actually I, we ended up categorizing them to things or essentially uh, uh, repairs that use using change of phase, repairs that use some kind of patch, repairs that used, repairs didn't, weren't even a repair. Uh, that, that basically was just a different way of maybe flying the vehicle uh, that, that could, you know, if you had damage, you wouldn't have to repair it necessarily. So we actually had a lot of concepts out there and we had this tremendous workshop where all these, people came together and 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 basically bought their their ideas and we tried to categorize them we tried to find the pros and cons of each one uh as a team and and, and individually and we couldn't get everything done in three days so we actually did it remotely after that you know essentially everyone was able to comment and give feedback on everyone's ideas and what they saw as the good things about it what they saw as the bad things about it and, and you want to want to know something. I remember when we were forming those teams, we were picking people based on their capabilities, their expertise, their creativity. So we hired some people from Laura. Ba we we brought in some one person from Laura, Laura Bailey's team at JSC that had some other ideas for tiles. There was another gentleman from Thiokol that we wanted to have, but oh yeah, but I remember. Mm -hmm. what was his name? Dean. Dean Lester from from Morton Thiokol, we wanted to have him, and unfortunately, the program manager JSC wouldn't let us have let, let him be there. But we had enough mix of creative people, technical people down and in systems people. We had astronauts that could address the operations of it, and they just spent had three days of fun coming up with crazy ideas. Yeah, and, and, and then you had to do ideas. something with it. Yeah. Yeah, we actually had a little bit. The first part of it actually was education. So we had we had people talk about the disciplines that are important. So we had an expert in aerodynamics talk about aerodynamics. We had uh, an EV astronaut like like mentioned Don Pettit. You know, Don Pettit. What, are, what are the constraints? What are the important things to know? Because sometimes you can come up with an idea sounds like a really great idea, except for it's got a showstopper in an area and another discipline. And, and luckily, we had Pete Nafo there. And we asked him to, well, what, what are the key parameters that we could vary to make sure this patch doesn't burn up? He did the analysis in the other se session with Pete. We talk about the, um, the Spartacus email trail <laughs> that that led to. But with that one expert and that one day's uh, uh, of analysis, Pete was able to give us the answers that we needed to be successful. And your team to be successful. Yeah, the, I think it's really important to have multiple disciplines uh, looking at these problems. I mean, companies companies when they're developing a new product do that all the time, but they do it in a very structured approach. We had to do it a little more of a freewheeling approach for for several reasons. One, we didn't have a huge, you know, budget or organization to do it. Uh, but and we also had we had a kind of a, a implicit time constraint because. The, we always wanted to fly soon. Soon was a number that kept changing, you know, kept moving downstream. So, uh, so we ended up trying not to essentially throw things away because it wouldn't make the schedule. 
because it turned out the schedule was never going to be the schedule as as claimed never turned out to be the schedule. They always postpone things later. So we until we were actually forced to, we tried to keep the different paths, the different discipline uh, ideas or, or ideas that were driven by different disciplines, keep them moving forward uh, and talking to each other <clears throat> cross cross fertilization uh, because because uh, to a lot of ways the schedule was was artificial. It never it doesn't really exist because it was just a number someone put down and as as a target and no one really knew what it would be. Absolutely. And I don't know if you remember this, Steve, but you know, I was an astronaut at the time. I don't think I had been selected to be on the next crew. But um what was amazing to me was the program office did not consider that repair kit as something that was necessary for flying. In my mind, I was I, I definitely wanted to have it. That's why I put you as the leader of this team to make sure we had something in time for the first flight. But what was amazing to me was that the space shuttle program did not think did not consider a repair methodology for tiles and wing leading edges as something that was necessary to fly. Yeah, well, they did, they did support having them. But it, it wasn't a right as far as I know. Again, I wasn't on the, on the inside. Uh, it wasn't. We're not going to go until we have those. No, no, think, it definitely wasn't. But I think there was again. It was a mix. There are some people who were much in favor of that, and they wanted at least some capability. So I think it was a mixed bag there. I don't know if there was which party or which uh, which camp you know carried the most weight. But I know there were people who said we just need to fly. We don't need to worry about having a repair capability. So I, yeah, I, but there was, I think there was people who thought the other way around too. And uh, luckily the, uh, we, we had some good supporters that, that supported, especially this, this R and D effort, you know, developing kind of the, air, the ability to repair a very large hole, uh, which is uh, with Steve Polis, who was the, the orbiter program manager. He was a tremendous supporter for that. Uh, and he's the one that kind of kept us going uh, regardless of the schedule. Oops. Oh, you're, I can hear you, Charlie. Yeah, I have some of those concepts for the viewers that are actually on the um, on the video, you know, or what they look like, you know, these repair techniques, these patches, you know, these very small pieces of carbon carbon. But Steve, what was amazing was, you know, we did that um, that uh, large large impact test, and what what we did learned from that large impact test was that 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 piece of foam that hit the wing leading edge we could have a 14 inch by 14 inch pizza box size hole in the wing and what was amazing was you and your team came up with a, a way that we could potentially repair even at extremely large hole in the wing leading edge and no one thought that would have been possible yeah that's that's true and and one thing about the shuttle leading edge that a lot of people don't realize is it's it's a very complex structure and it's it's a it's a mixture of carbon like carbon carbon you mentioned but there's also a coating on it that silicon carbide silicon carbide is the same material a lot of sandpapers made out of it's really really hard and so I think for months there were, there were groups of people trying to figure out how do we actually we have to attach to it how do we actually break through that coating. Uh, and we, one of the persons on our team, uh, who is a tremendous uh, technician, he actually was a toolmaker before he came to work for NASA. Uh, Ron Penner developed a step drill that, that basically could 
drove through the carbon-carbon and not only drove through it, but tapped, tapped the carbon-carbon so you could actually put a threaded fastener into it to hold or repair down, which ended up being something that was adopted by the, uh, the mainstream program too, because they needed that capability as well. But again, someone like that who has the, the expertise to be able to do that and develop a, uh, essentially you've seen step drills. This is a step drill that also tapped the hole at the same time that an EVA astronaut could use. So it's not just the thing you could get at, at Home Depot or, or any other store. Uh, this is something that you know he developed and actually had had machined, and was in time for Charlie's flight. In fact, the uh, the turn to flight we had actually his drills he developed were flew at, with the repair kit that did fly in that mission. Yeah, and I have I have that in my office here too, and that was something that me and Don started looking at very intently because everyone said it was impossible to do because, like Steve said, the silicon carbide you make cutting tools out of silicon carbide, you make drill bits out of silicon carbide, so they weren't having any luck until we happened to grab one of Don's spring-loaded center punches. And we tapped the coating with it, chipped it. And once you chipped the coating, it was real easy to drill through it. And so by luck, serendipity, um, we found that, yeah, we could do this. But more importantly, it was that relationship that we had as researchers at Langley with our technician staff. These amazing people, these model builders that were critical during the early NACA days and Ron Penner was just amazing. And I remember talking to him after, and after he received several awards for what he did, we kind of ruined him for life because he <laughs> he had so much fun working on this amazing challenge and being using his creativity that everything else he was doing likely seemed boring compared to what that's, he that's did. True. Yeah, and that's, you talk about teams, I think one of the things that helps a team really become a high-performing team is that you're given a challenge that really excites them, that they feel is important, uh, that they, you know, it's so important that basically they go to sleep thinking about it. They wake up, you know, if they have an idea, they wake up excited to be able to go into work to try to, you know, see if their idea can help. So having having these challenge these problems that are very challenging and, and again engineers love to solve problems uh, researchers love to investigate areas that that have challenges like that too uh, and having a, a challenge that is so critical like the like the uh, honorable repair for for the space shuttle uh, was was a challenge like that and again it was a challenge that was so important you know that people would really they, by themselves would put a lot of extra time into it. They won't just be a nine to five job in their minds. They're so excited about it. It becomes their hobby too. They do it outside of work. And, that, and that's critical, right, Steve? Uh, and, and, you know, that's why Steve and I, and we'll talk about it in a little bit about our passion for education right now. I, I, I work in the Epic Challenge Program, the Epic Education Foundation, and we're going to talk a little bit about Steve's work in education for Brilliant Star Magazine. He's director of STEM for Brilliant Star Magazine and the importance of exciting these kids to go into these these challenging areas, these very difficult areas. It takes a lot of study, a lot of rigor. But the hook that grabs Steve, which is very similar to me, is the challenge. And so that's why I call our program the Epic Challenge Program. But it, And how do you hike that challenge? 
How do you make it more epic, if you will, in order to really grab the just the right people you need that love to solve challenges, right? Yeah, you see this with kids. You do a lot of work with with kids and students. Yeah, and that, and that that by itself is a challenge because you know every everyone's different. Uh, so, what will excite one one kid or one one group of engineers may not excite others. Uh, but I do think if you have a challenge, like you say, a challenge that you'll call an epic challenge, that's something that excite almost everyone that that has a has ability to and, contribute to it. And and these challenges that we're talking about, they're broad enough in many different areas that you can pull kids even from non-technical areas, and they can be a part of it. And just working on this team is exciting. Yeah, well, that's that's, that's true. I think. The different, the diversity in in abilities, diverses in interests. Uh, you always get a better, you get always get a better solution when you look at look look very broadly at what's out there. You know, Steve, this reminds me because when you were working on this problem, right, you were pulling in these key experts in carbon carbon from NASA Langley that have worked in carbon carbon for thirty almost 40 plus years have been doing it day in, day out, down and in these material scientists. And you saw something amazing with one of the people that was on your team because he was able to be part of this challenge, right? He was- Yeah, well, I think, yeah, it's, I think like the epic, the epicness, the word you use uh, being epic, it being so important, it does energize people. So people that have not had, you know, much enthusiasm because it's, you know, no one really, carbon carbon was a very, was a very arcane area. There weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of uh, things being done with it at the time. So all of a sudden it becomes really important. So, and here there are people who could contribute to that, you know, to, to, to this, this epic challenge and that excites people. And so, you know, people that weren't producing that much before then, all of a sudden, you know, or they're energized. Uh, so, so having having a problem that really captures your imagination, builds up enthusiasm, is is seen important, and and also I think the way the way you allow the individuals on the team to work is important as well. If you constrain them too much, if you make it too too hierarchical, too um, uh, too milestone driven, I'll use that word. Essentially, you've got, there's a balance between getting to a solution uh, and, and doing it in a very structured way. Too much structure oh. is actually bad for creativity oh. and it's bad, it's bad for enthusiasm. Absolutely. So I call it failing smart, fast, small, cheap, early and often. Mike Nemeth, when we talked with Mike, talked about, you know, having all these requirements on you to write papers, to create slides for program managers to use, taking you away from what you love to do, which is solving problems and how that how that causes an impediment to that creativity and that progress. Yeah, that's, I think the ability to, to, uh, to, again, follow the path where it leads, uh, the technical path, and, and, be, and make mistakes because not every path will, will lead to a, a good, good answer. May, some may be dead ends, but, but the ability to go to that dead end and say, okay, I'm gonna double back and go down a different path uh, and not with, with no ramifications. Uh, again, you can't, you can't spend a whole career doing that, uh, but there's a balance in terms of how much of that you're allowed to do or you're able to do. 
But if you're trying to solve the problem, you're almost like self, you're almost uh, self, uh, what's the right word for it? Uh, govern, basically, you, you kind of know I have to stop here because it's not getting anywhere and I, I need to go back and think about it again. So you don't need people telling you that. You kind of I mean, govern that yourself because you, you want to get the answer. It's not, you just want it, you know, you want your answer to be right. You want the answer, an answer that will work. You know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little break here. I'm gonna brag about you a little bit because you know, like I said, you headed up the the metals and thermal structures branch. It used to be the thermal structures branch before I dumped it in your lap when I found out I was selected to be an astronaut. And you were absolutely the right person for the job. Your RTF act, return to flight activities, aerothermal structures working group. You were on the debris assessment team. Uh, we talked about your your working on the orbiter repair team you were also and i didn't notice in on the independent technical assessment team right for the external tank looking at the foam or what was causing the foam to come off but let me brag a little bit about you received in 2013 the nasa outstanding leadership medal uh 2008 exceptional engineering achievement medal in 2004 the eps Exceptional Achievement Medal for Developing the, the Root Causes for the Columbia Accident, right? And so one of the other things you received a couple of awards for, and Steve has at least at least 30 awards from NASA, national and international awards, many uh, technical papers. But I want to talk a little bit about another team I pulled you into because I knew I could hook you and get you excited about this. And this was the launch abort team. We were looking at the composite crew vehicle for Artemis right now, the Orion vehicle. Back then it was called the Constellation vehicle when it was a single stick, uh, just solid propulsion rocket that was going to take astronauts to uh, space station. And they were having problems with acoustics, but we didn't solve the get hooked into this problem. We were trying to save weight, mass for the um, for the uh, uh, Orion capsule, and also for the launch abort system. And I I go to my good buddy Steve, and I said, Steve, I think we could do a better job of this. And I pulled you in and tell us tell us where that led. Okay, so uh, yeah, so actually we're able to. Uh pull together uh, first a small team at Langley just to kind of look at the potential for, for mass savings. And actually, you know, we actually worked on that maybe only six, eight months at the most. Uh, but we showed enough potential there that we went, that we got, uh, we got some of the folks in the program office uh, interested in what we're doing. And then we found out from them that this is the program office for the uh, Orion crew capsule. We found out actually they actually had a worse problem. They they actually had a problem with acoustics. Acoustics. So when I say acoustics, basically when you launch uh, a launch vehicle, you have the you know, very loud you know noises that actually can be powerful enough to the structural acoustics. The 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 shock waves from a rocket launch could essentially destroy a structure, uh, especially a thin gauge you know uh, structure that's and not the, built. And, and especially the electronics, right, that were on, on the vehicle. And what was amazing, when we were given that presentation, when you were given that presentation to the program office, we thought they were going to be excited about us saving 1,200 pounds of mass to orbit on a vehicle that was overweight and they needed to save weight. Instead, we were shocked 
when they looked at that the the shape of our configuration and they said wow this could be something that could solve this other problem that was really um something that would have prevented them from even launching the acoustic loads were so high that we didn't have any test facility to test and so then you got handed more money you built a new team and you went so uh yeah, so so once we found out that the problem they really cared a lot about was one we had never heard of, which was these acoustic loads, especially when you go through uh, transonic, you know, going breaking the sound barrier, and as well as the uh, the the the, uh, uh, the launch vehicle. But the most most important was the the loads after you've launched, and they they uh, had these problems even back during the Apollo days. But you know, so we actually. Had some had a had a team of people who worked for the program, and, and as well as a group of people who work with our, our team, go back again. Look look at the old Apollo data. The problem was that data was so old, and again we we've advanced so much since then that uh, that the data was not that helpful. Uh, but they had similar problems during the Apollo days. We found out, but everything was built a little briefier back then, so maybe it wasn't a problem. Or maybe they didn't know they had a problem and and just survived by by luck. We don't I, we don't really know, but the good thing is that uh, we were kind of given again some support to be able to look at this problem. So we had uh, and this was a problem where we actually brought in from just a lot of people working at Langley and, and Johnson. We actually had some people at other uh, NASA centers who are who are essentially. Uh, interested in, in working this problem. So we had a really good uh, uh, wind tunnel group uh, at NASA Ames and NASA uh, Glenn uh, who, who helped us because part of the problem was we have to understand what the loads were. And, and we discovered very quickly that there was no way, we talked about computer power, uh, computer power at that time and probably still today really can't predict these acoustic loads very well. You have to have to do it by test. And again, testing in a wind tunnel is not exactly the same as, as testing at flight, but you can get some good indications there. So we actually had to do a bunch of wind tunnel tests. Uh, and we had some good aerodynamicists who are working on the team. Uh, and you know, everyone came up with ideas. So we tried to actually combine ways where we could reduce the, uh, the drag on the vehicle as well, because we found that the drag was so high on, on the original configurations that you can get more weight to orbit by, by reducing drag than by essentially making a lighter structure. So we kind of tried to combine the two, and it turned out that uh, based on tests we did in the wind tunnel, and also some, some computational work uh, that done by some members of, of the team at Langley, we actually came across the root cause of that problem, which no one knew. No one knew the root cause of that problem was essentially an oscillating shock wave that caused all these acoustic loads. And once we could see that in, in the Schlieren photographs and the wind tunnel tests and were able to show uh, the issue with that in a computer program that, that ran the computational fluid dynamics and saw, hey, I can't even converge here because this, this thing is moving so fast my computer can't resolve it. We've, we got a, there was an aha moment there. Aha, this is what's causing the problem. And how do you fix that problem? You basically, you put a solid boundary there so that you don't have this area where the shocks can bounce around in. And that's kind of what determined the design. And we did some additional wind tunnel tests that with different uh, outer mole line configurations that uh, that helped helped with that. 
uh, acoustic problem and, and they worked great. They really reduced the lows down significantly and we actually had wind tunnel data to show that. And they ended up making the, uh, the Orion capsule, the abort system, if you look at it, it's like a, it's like a, a bicon, it's got a conic very top and then it's got like a O-drive for, for lowering the drag below that. And so mixing those two together solved the acoustic problem and also reduced the drag uh, on the vehicle so you get more mass to orbit. So it was, it was kind of a win-win situation. And there were other disciplines too that contributed too. We had guidance control people working on the, uh, how do you, if you aborted, would this be able to be stable? We'd be able to control it. Can we get far enough away? And one of the other advantages, the streamlined uh, shape lets you get a certain distance away that was a minimum requirement. I forget maybe how many miles away an abort has to get before, before uh, the booster might explode. And the configuration also improved that metric as well. You're able to get further away than the initial design just because of the better aerodynamics. And, and, and the beauty of, of this was, and this is where I got to give a little bit of credit to the NESC and Ralph Rowe. We convinced Ralph Rowe that, hey, we need to do this. We need some money, but we needed to not be constrained by what the program office wanted us to do. If the program office was directing this program, they would have narrowed the field. You would have not been able to make the discoveries you made. We had to treat it like, like researchers would. And very efficiently, very effectively, failing smart, fast, small, cheap, early and often, you you got you were able to do very rapid analyses. You were able to get some very critical wind tunnel results to compare. And so you accelerated this learning process very quickly. And lo and behold, a lot of we came up with a patent. We got you got a patent for it. And um, if we look at the launch vehicle right now, the launch abort system on the Artemis vehicle, it looks a lot like the concepts that we were that you were proposing. And so it was another, in my mind, a success story. But the real nuts and bolts of this success story is, yeah, we had good people, but getting the right people, putting them together on the right team, and you mentioned stability, right? When you realized you had a stability problem, right away you were able to go and grab a person that understood stability because you knew you needed that on your team, right? Mm-hmm. And well, again, having a network at, at a place like Langley, which had all the disciplines there, I could go to the branch head, you know, who, who I knew personally and say, I need someone to be able to solve this problem. And if it was someone they didn't know, perhaps they may they may just blow you off or they, they may, you know, give you someone that really is, is not a, a high performer. But uh, it turned out that we again, we had. People that people that were really good at their job, who were high performers, and who got excited about, hey, we've got a we've got a problem to solve, and and they developed in real time developed some new tools that could use that could be specialized yeah. to solve that particular problem. You you made new discoveries. You added to the body of knowledge and acoustic loads what causes them, how to predict them. And, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, in a lot of what I write about and talk about on high-performing teams, Steve, it comes down to the leader. And let me tell you something, buddy. You know, I talk about the Friends of Charlie Network, but you have the Friends of Steve Network, and they know Steve Scotty. They know if he's coming to them with a problem and it's a challenge, it's a worthy challenge. And it's a worthy problem to work, number one. Number two, they get to work with somebody like a Steve Scotty 
on this challenge and they signed up to work with you more than any other person. You know, I, I remember Ralph was talking about the people in the NESC were looking at some of these problems and I don't know where you're going to find the people to work. They were all doing other things, but you found the right people. And I guarantee you, they wanted to work on this problem because of you, Steve, because you were the leader of, of that team and they knew how cool it would be and what an exciting problem they got to work on. Well, I, 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 I'm not sure that's true, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. It is. It is. The listeners will, will have to have to believe me on this one. But Steve, you're you're amazing. You know that you're a good friend of mine, and I I can't stop bragging about you. But we're going to close out this um this podcast. We could have two or three podcasts with you, believe me, and pick your brain. But I want you to be able to to give your thoughts, some some things you want to leave with the audience about what you think about where we are at NASA right now. Your ideas for where we should be going. And then I want you to close by talking about what you're doing right now, your passion with the kids and with education. Okay. I appreciate that, Charlie. Uh, uh, I think, well, I mean, what NASA could do or should be doing, I do think the uh, one of the things that I've seen in my career before I retired uh, from my early days to just before I retired a couple few years ago, is the uh, essentially the narrowing of the ability to branch out. So being everything being so driven by a program and a milestone that a program manager, you know, doesn't care about you know anything but meeting that milestone. And when I started, when I started working on at NASA, I never even saw a program manager <laughs> because because the research was more driven by the uh, the. Uh, the managers of the research branches. So you had a, someone like Jim Starnes, who was, you know, essentially world renowned in, in, in structural mechanics. He laid out in his mind how the, the, the discipline of structural mechanics, uh, especially in composite structures, needs to advance to be able to be useful to aircraft and spacecraft. In his mind, he laid that out essentially a decade or more worth of, of work that needed to be done. And he methodically found funding for it and was able to uh, mentor younger engineers to work in the different areas that needed to be worked. Uh, damage tolerance was a big area, fatigue and fracture. Uh, manufacturing became later, uh, structural concepts and, and, and structural response and how that works in, in both shells, thin shells, and as well as uh, more thicker structure that behaves totally differently. But someone that had that expertise in, in the discipline, they're trying to, to position discipline so it can produce um, practical results. So he wanted and to be able to see airplanes flying that were composite. He wanted to see spacecraft flying that were composite. And you mentioned something that I, before I forget, that's very important, Steve, is that he had an independent, we had an independent research budget, number one. And also rather than hog that budget just for structural problems, if he knew that he needed materials expertise like fraction mechanics and damage tolerance, he would give that money to those people because it was a highly coupled interdisciplinary problem. So it wasn't that competition for for funding, yeah, it's it's uh, and, and so yeah, that's true, and and so having leadership that like that had potentially managerial leadership as well as technical expertise, uh, 
it's still good today, but not nearly as good back as when I started the career because then, then the technical managers were also the managers of the people and the programs. So, so, so you had, again, world-renowned engineers like, uh, and researchers like Jim Starnes, who actually had a lab named after him because he was so, so you know, uh, pro proficient in his area and, and, uh, and produced so much. Uh, and it was so well known that, that, that you know, he deserved to have something named after him. But having that, uh, someone like a Jim Starnes would have let you branch out a little bit. Whereas a program manager today that, that doesn't have the technical background would not necessarily give you that freedom to do that. So that's one of the things I think has changed, uh, not necessarily for the better, for the worse to a large degree, because some, some branches off the path that, that the program says you wanna go on could be either, even more uh, fruitful branches than the ones that they're telling you to go down. So a young engineer uh, has less freedom to be able to, to pursue these side interests. And, and of course you can always do it on your own, uh, but you can only make so much progress on your own. Uh, but but uh, that's something I think that's uh, not as been as, has been a negative perhaps uh, over the years as, as NASA has evolved, you know, little, little less, uh, freedom for the researchers and, and less less guidance from the really uh, really smart uh, technical discipline uh, experts for the engineers to be able to be mentored and be able to move into a path that potentially could make their own career uh, into one that's really become an expert in. So that's excellent, area excellent to talk about. Excellent take on that, Steve. Um, so tell us a little about your new passion. Uh, you're the STEM director for Brilliant Star magazine. Tell us why Brilliant Star. Um, it, it's also part of part of your faith that you got interested in, in this one organization. But tell us how much fun you're having um, and what you're doing with okay. with young kids, getting them interested in STEM. Well, actually, Charlie was actually influential in me really getting an interest in, in STEM education for kids, and it's because actually a friend of his from Boeing that showed me some data that just shocked me in terms of you start from kindergarten up to through college age. And that's, um, and that's Mike Ritchie, the chief learning officer at Boeing, another good friend that we're going to have on the podcast. But uh, he showed data where essentially if you start with 100 people or, uh, at the 100 kids to start, year by year as they go through school, how many drop out and lose interest in STEM? And a lot of it, and, and it kind of falls off a cliff uh, by the middle school age of kids. It, I mean, so you're going down uh, and then all of a sudden, joof, there's a big jump in the middle state, middle school age. And this was this was data that, that he had accumulated as part of his job for Boeing because uh, he was trying to essentially work about education for the next, next group of Boeing engineers. So he had to do his own research. And this is one of the research things. And I saw that and I'm thinking, wow, that's an age group that really is, is important to middle school age of kids. And it, and it turns out that uh, uh, I'm a Baha'i, and so there's a children's magazine called Brilliant Star, that, and so they have a, a printed magazine on the website that, uh, that actually was looking for uh, an editor. Uh, and, and so I, I was going to retire soon, so I contacted them and said, listen, I'd, I'd be happy to volunteer. You know, you know, once I'm retired, I don't need you to pay me. I can just, you know, contribute my time to it. And so I was going to do that as an editor. I said, well, you know, what really could use is, is someone who's really good in you know, your background in, in the uh, STEM field. 
So they actually create a position, uh, a volunteer position that called, they call it the STEM education advisor. But uh, so, uh, and they've given me a, again, a lot of rope to be able to hang myself. But uh, so I've actually had a, a, a column in the magazine almost every month, essentially called Space Ace, where I answer kids questions. And when I can answer myself, I go and use my network and I get uh, experts in different areas. And I've talked to several engineers like Charlie and, and Don Pettit and, and Leland Melvin. And they've answered questions uh, that kids have, especially if it's an area about you know being an astronaut. I can't answer them from experience. Charlie and, and Don Pettit and Leland Melvin can. So, so I, if, if I in any discipline that I don't have the answer for, I try not to answer it myself uh, if I can find an expert that can do it. So I'll I'll reach out and and, and make and, and increase my network by talking to the experts. So they answer kids' questions on and Space Ace. And then I just write articles in different different areas where I try to combine values uh, and science and 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 uh, education and science education STEM education, where you know persistence is an, is an important value, and you can't make scientific discoveries unless you're persistent. Uh, so I wrote an article on on that, and, and there's actually a, a, a scientist that discovered the essentially a cloud that follows the moon that. Essentially, it's, it's, it's actually a, a false moon that he predicted would be there and took him years to discover. He finally discovered it. But his persistence was something I brought up in the article. And, and other things like that try to tie the world of values to the world of STEM and show how there's a lot of, a lot of connectivity there. Uh, so I've, I'm doing that both on the website uh, as well as in, in the uh, magazine. And... Uh, and I've also been able to have. Steve, can you give us can you give us that website if uh, yeah, if the so, audience uh, would like to contact and see what you're doing? Yeah, so the website is is brainstarmagazine.org, and brainstarmagazine is one word, so brainstarmagazine.org, and uh, and so I've got a a landing page on there, a uh, STEM landing page that has jump off all our articles that either I've written or I've wrote people into writing. Uh, we also have some videos, uh, Charlie's and some of them, uh, asking questions of astronauts. Uh, Leland Melvin mentioned uh, he, he's in he's in one. Uh, uh, we had some Don other Pettit. Don, yeah, Don, Don, Don Pettit's Pettit. my all-time favorite. Uh, so so we've had interviewed some astronauts and put them on video, you know, short videos like you know five to ten minutes long, where they're answering answering kids' questions. And one thing that I did recently that, uh, again, it was kind of fortuitous, the, uh, the technical director of the magazine, the creative director, asked if I could help. They had a problem with, they had a, actually an art app that essentially kids could draw with. Uh, it was a web app. So on the website, you can draw things. And she said, it's broken. Can you fix it? So I actually spent about two years developing a new app that's now live it's called Imagination Station 2. And, and so you can get to it on, and you can draw things, you can bring clip art in, you can save your drawings and go back to them later. Uh, and it's a lot of fun uh, to be able to, again, it gives kids a, a, a creativity is a, is a big part in my mind of, of, of research engineering and engineering. Uh, scientists just don't do math. They have to be very creative in what they do. Uh, so as, some even artistic in some ways. So, so uh, STEM to me includes things like like uh, values, like mentioned, like uh, persistence, and also you need some artistic flair and artistic creativity. So, so STEM is a very broad field because basically everything we do, when you think about it, has some STEM 
app, either STEM has some involvement in it or it's been started. STEM or STEAM, right? STEM, STEAM. Yeah, because uh, you have to have you have to have the arts in there, Steve. And you know, even old guys like us, you know, for for those that are watching the video, you can see the excitement. And old guys like us, even even Steve is is gets excited about it because it's that creativity, having that fun, and science should be fun, learning should be fun, and and Steve, you're you're an excellent ambassador for Brilliant Star Magazine. They're lucky to have you. And, um, and I want to thank you for agreeing to be a host on, on this podcast for people to get to know you a little bit more. And I want to, I want to thank you very much, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.